0: Welcome to Tea and Tattle. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and this week I'm joined by the fabulous Lucy Worsley to discuss Lucy's latest novel for young adults, The Austen Girls. Lucy Worsley is an historian, writer, television presenter, and the chief curator of the historic royal palaces, with her office situated at Hampton Court Palace. Lucy is the author of several best-selling books, including the captivating biography of Jane Austen, Jane Austen at Home. Her historical stories for children, aged around 11 to 14, are also hugely popular, and I loved The Austen Girls, which tells the story of Jane Austen's favourite nieces, Anna and Fanny, and the difficult decisions they must make as they approach womanhood and look ahead to the prospect of balls and marriage proposals. Tasked by their Aunt Jane to be the heroines of their own lives, both Fanny and Anna must decide the kind of women they wish to become. I would so recommend the Austen Girls for anyone who is homeschooling during lockdown at the moment, as, as well as being a fun, gripping story that both children and adults can enjoy... The Austen Girls also gives a fascinating perspective on the domestic sphere of women in Georgian England. Of course, The Austen Girls does also provide some excellent background to Jane Austen's world, and I had a fabulous time chatting to Lucy about her love for Jane Austen and how she came to write this novel about the Austen nieces. Let's get started with the show. Hello Lucy, thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle today.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm very excited to be here.
0: Well I'm so excited to be talking to you, I'm a huge fan of all the brilliant work that you do. <sighs>
1: you and... have just the best taste, I have to say that. <laughs> Discerning woman (laughs) that you are.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But it's also just a pleasure for a real Janeite like myself to be talking to someone else who I know adores Jane Austen's work. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you would tell me a bit about your own. Jane Austen's story? What first sparked yeah. your love for her literature? And what led you to write about her life with your brilliant biography, Jane Austen yeah. at Home, and now your novel, The Austen Girls? Uh, 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 well, I I,
1: I I, read Jane Austen novels when I was growing up. but the time they became important to me it was when I was doing my final exams for my history degree. And it was a time of stress. I mean, not stressed compared with what the what people of the world are experiencing at the moment in the middle of the coronavirus. But it was a stressful time. And I found myself doing my revision all day. And what did I want to read in the evenings? I wanted to read Jane Austen and I worked my way through all the novels, sort of on a loop then, as I have read that people did in The blitz as well. Even Winston Churchill was a fan. They were sort of escapist reading. And then I'll tell you what happened. When I got to about the age of 30, I became much more aware of Jane Austen as a person in in real life and how she got to what were called the, the years of danger in Georgian society for unmarried mm-hmm. ladies. And she began to have to make choices about was she going to be married? Was she going to become a professional writer instead? And it was only as a mature person, really, that I came to appreciate the significance of the challenges that she had to overcome, I think.
0: Yes, I know. And you write about that so well in Jane Austen at home but of course the Austen girls starts out with Jane Austen's nieces Anna and Fanny Austen who are just about to be launched on the marriage (laughs) market (laughs) and have to start thinking these bigger questions for themselves.
1: Yes yes I I wrote this non-fiction biography of Jane Austen for adults called Jane Austen at home And um, there's a whole chapter in there which I researched about Jane's two nieces, um, Fanny and Anna. And they are known to the world because Jane Austen's own own letters... Um, tell how she would give them sort of agony aunt advice as they were coming out onto the marriage market themselves. So when I was researching them, I thought these are the characters in a teenage novel. I love these girls. I have to tell their stories. So that's why I made them into my fictional heroines. And what, what the girls have to negotiate is the, the the great trial of any upper crust Georgian young lady's life, who, who to marry. And I thought I would like to explore that conundrum from the point of view of of my two fictional heroines and I've called them heroines in the book and that's very um that's very deliberate because because Jade Austen herself would write about her heroines the heroines of her novels and I can imagine her trying to coach her actual real life nieces to be heroines in their own right
0: Yes, I mean they both remind me of Catherine Morland in Northanger Abbey. They're both sort of in training to become heroines. You've spotted it, you've spotted what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I do love how you've created Jane Austen in your book as someone who is just such a wise and supportive character, you know, to her young nieces. And she really does task them to be the heroines of their own life. And they both much look up to their aunt. Um, but I also feel, I mean, for myself certainly, but for so many young women, Jane Austen has inspired so many of us to really question our own lives and our own values and desires. And I think to make bolder decisions with our lives. And I wondered. Do you still at all look to her books for inspiration or guidance? Or has her life story or her fiction ever inspired you and in the choices you've made in life?
1: Totally. 100% yes. What you, what I take away from her life story is the courage that she had to do difficult things. Uh, so that that's a hopeful sort of message, if you like, that you can find in her work. But there's also uh, something that really is more negative than that. She depicts a world in which choice is so, so limited for women in terms of what you can do, where you can go, who you can meet. And, and what's what's annoying is the way that so many of those restrictions still exist. That's why she's still relevant, you know. That's why she's there on the £10 note, because she, she does represent a lack of choice for women as well, I think. That's a really yes, negative absolutely. answer. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> <laughs> she, no, she missed- but it's... So- she is overall a beacon of, of courage and inspiration and uh, she's 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 a wonderful person. Oh, I can't tell you how much I admire her, not just as a writer, but as a human being as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. But I think you're right. I mean, she does. She did show so much courage um, as an individual and she did have to make hard decisions in her life. And when I read your biography, Jane Austen at Home, one point that really struck me that I hadn't really thought of before was how much of her life um, was lived during the Napoleonic Wars. And so there was even less of a choice of men you know, to <laughs> marry. And that reminded me of the surplus women, you know, after World War One, And I sort of had never really made that connection before. Um, but I really enjoyed reading about that in your book. But also, of course, we can be so thankful, really, that she didn't ever marry because would we ever have had these fantastic books otherwise
1: i don't think we would have because it would have been her duty to give birth to babies not books a large number of babies and i'm sure that one of the reasons she felt nervous about marriage herself was because she experienced her sisters-in-law um i think three of them all dying in childbirth in in mm. at one state at one stage or another of her of their careers Oof. Something else that I've made use of in my fiction, actually, a really horrific real-life event, the death of a, a mother in childbirth.
0: Yes, exactly. Were you tempted at all to write about Jane's relationship with Cassandra and sort of fictionalise their young womanhood? Or did you just always know that it was her nieces that sort of particularly fascinated you? The nieces fascinated
1: me more, I think, because I felt they were less well known. I mean, Jane's relationship with Cassandra is a, a wonderful story that's been told fictionally lots of times. I, I felt the nieces were. Um, Uh, More more by Cup of Tea, I I, I think, perhaps because there was wonderful sources like Fanny's Diary that inspired me, and also because they had two very different, contrasting upbringings and characters. So one of the things that I enjoy about, about writing fiction is creating the historical setting. And I was keen to uh, try to describe Godmersham Park, the, the big house where Fanny Austin Knight grew up, the one that's actually depicted on the £10 note, which is a real place. And I, I'd been there and I, I used that as an inspiration as well. And I wanted to contrast that with the life in um, the parsonage of Steventon, which is where Anna Austin, Jane's other niece, grew up. And I wanted to draw out the different levels of sort of comfort and... Um, luxury and utility that you would experience in, in these sort of Georgian domestic settings. And I was also quite keen to explore the issue of women's work. What, is, what does it mean to do women's work? And on one level, the people in Jane Austen books don't do any work. They just sit around embroidering things and talking to an, each other. But I also wanted to make it clear that actually there was invisible work that these women did in terms of running a house, running an estate, and um, one of the things that's said about Elizabeth Bennet at the end of Pride and Prejudice is that kind of she gets it already because she gets the dishy man, but she also gets a job, which is being CEO of Pemberley, Inc. <laughs> you know, that's our big responsibility. She has line management over a number of people. So she gets to use her, her talents in a way that's not immediately obvious if you believe in this fiction that Georgian women in the upper classes did no work.
0: Yes. No, I loved how you showed that... Well, what hard work it really was running a big household. I mean Fanny's mother Elizabeth is just on the go all the time and she's very hands-on with all of the sort of domestic side to running the house, which I found so interesting but also Anna who is less wealthy has to help out at her at her home at steventon rectory a lot as well with working in the dairy mm. and all of that and i found those little mm. details so interesting but before we talk about the book more would you mind reading an extract certainly
1: certainly i have picked to read um a scene that takes place at the breakfast table and this is the night after the two heroines uh, jane's nieces fanny and annie have been out um on the marriage market for the first time at their very first ball so, <clears throat> the family are all gathered in the, drawing, uh, in the breakfast room at Godmersham Park. And Aunt, Aunt Jane is about to make one of her, her rare interjections into family life. <laughs> Here it is. The girls, said Aunt Jane, having got the attention of the whole room, are in training. They are in training to become heroines, like the heroines in stories and novels. Oh, Aunt Jane, Fanny burst out. She couldn't help herself. I'm nothing like a heroine. No one will ever write a story about my life. Anna, perhaps, but I'm very ordinary. But Aunt Jane just smiled at Fanny, otherwise ignoring her words. My nieces can't mess around with silly men or unsuitable men or bad men, Aunt Jane now said. They need to hold out for someone extraordinary. If indeed they choose to give themselves in marriage at all. At that, Elizabeth, that's the mother of Fanny, gave a loud tut and threw up her hands. But Aunt Jane was relentless. How should a heroine act, she continued, as she comes of age like Fanny and Anna and makes her entry into the world. No, be quiet, Marianne. Let's hear it from Fanny and Anna themselves. Aunt Jane didn't often speak, but when she did, the family generally listened. Even Edward. Fanny's father was curious. He shushed some of the children and he stopped crunching his toast. Anna spoke first. We should be bold, she said. We must take our destiny into our own hands. There was silence. Everyone wanted to hear what judgment Aunt Jane would pass, but instead she silently swiveled her head to look at Fanny. Annie's thoughts word. Was there a right answer? What did she really think? I imagine, she began. Well, her aunt was waiting. I imagine that we should be wise in choosing who to dance with and so on. Aunt Jane smiled. Be both bold and wise, girls. I knew that you two would know what to do and how to behave. I knew it. You have more power than you think. Spend it well. Fanny and Anna exchanged glances. It was rare to win the praise of Aunt Jane, but when it came, it was always worth having. But Lizzie, Fanny's younger sister, groaned and pushed back her chair in disgust. You make it sound like a horse race, Aunt Jane, she complained, with fences to jump. You make it sound like it's really difficult to pick a husband. Surely, girls should just take the first one that comes along. Then they can crow about being married. It is hard, Aunt Jane said quietly. But she'd retreated back behind her newspaper. She'd lost interest in the conversation. Oh, what nonsense, said Fanny's mother sharply, more sharply than she was accustomed to speak, even when the children did evil things. A girl needs a husband. Ideally a lord, it's true, but any gentleman of good birth and good fortune will do perfectly well. Aunt Jane's intense silence might have signalled her disagreement. The smaller girls, having received no attention for several minutes, again began to complain and spill their milk and generally act up. Oh, don't fill their heads with such nonsense, Jane, Elizabeth said, in between dishing out admonitions to her offspring. Fanny and Anna will marry very quickly, I'm sure, and will be off our hands before any of the other girls from Kent can catch up with them. Of course we will, said Anna stoutly. But inside herself, Fanny didn't feel so sure. It hadn't been all that easy so far, and here was a new question popping into her mind. Why, for example, hadn't Aunt Jane, who was so clever, got married herself? Had she somehow failed? In boldness and wisdom, hadn't anybody wanted her? Maybe the husbands on offer hadn't been extraordinary enough for Fanny's aunt. One day, Fanny thought, I must ask her.
0: That was wonderful, thank you. I loved how you described Jane Austen's relationship with her nieces in your book. How much of that was true to life? What what was her relationship really like with... Anna and Fanny? And what resources did you use for your research?
1: Well, these two girls were the, um, the first born amongst Jane's uh, notoriously large number of nieces and nephews. I think she came to have 36 of them in the end or something like that. <laughs> so, so these these two were the first girls in her life. And she was really close to them, really fond of them. Uh, described uh, Fanny, for example, as almost like another sister, and we all know how close she was to her sister Cassandra. And in her correspondence, uh, you you get the sense that yes, she 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 loves these girls, but also is perhaps using them as fodder, as copy for her novels. So the, the, the sort of headstrong, difficult character of Anna has been seen as a, a precursor of Jane Austen's character, Emma, for example, who's, who's a very clever, but also a slightly difficult, prickly sort of person. Yes. And, <laughs> and then one thing that I, I just love looking at is, is Fanny's diary, because it's so recognisable as the diary of, of quite a sort of um, uh, 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 an excitable girl coming to terms with with the world, really. She gets so excited. And get, I, it was such a, I had read the original in the, um, the county record office in, in Hampshire, um, mm-hmm. in Winchester, and uh, it was a, a wonderful day. And so there are scenes described in Fanny's diary, um, like I'm, I'm quoting here, about how she would spend the day with her cousin Anna when they were visiting each other. Here's one day that they spent, Anna and I read romances in the Gothic seat, uh, we went gypsying in the park. We took a basket of bread and cheese and a bottle of water, some books and work and paper and pencil. We enjoyed ourselves very much. So that set me off on the idea of setting one of my scenes in the park of Godmersham, um, mm. ha- uh, Godmersham House itself. And I don't want to give too much away about what happens. I mean, I'm treating real history like it's a story here. But Anna, headstrong girl, gets engaged, says so she, she scores a goal, if you like, in the game of the marriage market. <laughs> but then, ridiculous girl, she breaks it off. <laughs> and it's this sort of toing and throwing that, that kept Aunt Jane Austen, you know, engaged in this real-life soap opera of what was happening amongst her nieces. <laughs>
0: Yes, oh, I love that. I love the idea that she may be, you know, used a bit of it for (laughs) her own plot and character inspiration. But your book as well shows well. It's set at Godmersham Park, which was a beautiful estate that was very important to Jane Austen. And like how Anna and Fanny perhaps inspired some of her characters, surely at life at Godmersham Park. Maybe also inspired her novels. Would you tell me a bit about Godmersham Park and what its particular significance was in Jane Austen's life?
1: Oh, this is this is a really interesting question. What what do houses mean in in Georgian England? And you assume that when there's a big house involved, you know it, it's inherited through the family. Everything's very straightforward, and the world is a stable place no these things uh move about they're quite sort of precarious and who owns a house who ends up with a house could be a huge matter of of chance and and risk if you like so Jane Austen is at the level of society that uh you you is sometimes called um pseudo gentry I think it's a great word pseudo gentry it means that you want to be the landed gentry but you don't have any land, you don't actually have a big house, even though such things are available in your family. So in Jane's own family, she was just a few sort of biological accidents away from massive mansions like um, Stoneley Abbey in Warwickshire, for example. And Godmarshan House, it came to be in her brother's possession by quite an unexpected route. The people who owned it were childless, and Jane had all these brothers and sisters, her family didn't quite know what to do with them all, and they gave one of the sons away to become the child and the heir of the people who owned Godmersham Park, and so he inherited this huge mansion. Now, the unfairness of that happening to the rest of the siblings—why has one of them has been, been selected in this way? It 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 just happened, and you can see in Jane's own books that houses are sort of graspable. If the cards fall right, if you play the game correctly, uh, the ownership of an estate could possibly come your way and then jane will go and visit her lucky brother at Godmersham park but she was always the poor relation in that environment the one who hadn't been lucky and that i think gives a sense of the sort of outsider status of for example her character fanny in uh, mansfield park and also perhaps this is elizabeth bennett um going to rosings you know feeling feeling out of place in in a house where high society was was happening and she was sort of entitled to be there but not really and it's that outsider status that gives her the perspective that a novelist needs i think
0: Mm, yes, absolutely. And you show in the book, too, in The Austen Girls, how um, she is a bit of an outsider. She's so often an onlooker as to all the drama that's occurring. And like you said in that small scene that you read out loud, she didn't often speak. But when she did, she was certainly listened to. But I was so interested how in the Austin Girls you really situate the action very carefully by each chapter heading. So, chapter one, for instance, is Fanny's bedroom at Godmersham Park. Um, we have the breakfast table at Godmersham Park, even the staircase at Godmersham Park. What made you do that? Why did you want to make it so clear? where the action was occurring in each chapter
1: i did that because that's how i that's how jane austen's own novels come across to me as short sharp scenes of dialogue and you always know where you are in the world of uh highbury or wherever it is that the particular book is set Although she doesn't necessarily spell it out to you, you always feel that Jane Austen herself is very tightly controlling the geography of the set, if you like. Doesn't necessarily describe it in a whole lot of detail. Uh, And then the characters perform their dialogue upon it. As you know, um, famously, uh, these novels, when they were first published, were very often read aloud. And that's been suggested as a reason why they have this sort of snappy interplay of, of, of dialogue sort of quality to them. They're almost like the scripts of of films. This is, this is a sort of a cliché thing to say about Jane Auster novels. But one of the reasons that it's often said that they work so well as films is because they're written as that, you know, small groups of characters in scenes together. And then the action is unfolding through what they say, what they say to each other. Um, mm. So it just seems natural to try to tell the story in, in that way.
0: Yes, there's definitely a theatrical quality to her works and I enjoyed how you picked up on that too. And Jane Austen did famously love the theatre herself too, didn't she?
1: Totally, yes, yes, yes. And some of the evidence for her work being written out is that where, where there are bits of her handwriting, of uh, not, not a huge amount of but where you do get snatches of her, drafts of her books in her own handwriting, when a new character comes in, she often just puts a little dash so she's not using inverted commas, she just uses a dash, like the actors entering um, into their, their lines in a, in a play. And you're right that she was, you know, if she were alive today, um, she was so interested in theatre herself. If she, if she were alive today, I can really imagine her being in the writer's room on some kind of very topical, long-running TV comedy or current affairs programme, sort of that sort of person, having that sort of mind and brain, I feel.
0: Oh, well, I love that sort of imagined snapshot of who she would be now. And I also love this picture of her that you... um bring to life so well in Jane Austen at home, where I think it's one of her other nieces speaks a little jealousy about, um, I think it's Fanny or Anna or both, that they were often admitted to oh, Jane's yes. own room and, and, they, and she could hear them laughing <laughs> out loud. <over> the
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think it must have been wonderful to be Jane, one of one of Jane Austen's special nieces. I, I hope they realised how lucky they were.
0: Yes, oh, I hope so too. But I really enjoyed a very exciting plot line in The Austen Girls um, that involved well, theft and blackmail and a thief taker, uh, which I found really interesting. And I know that that was inspired by a real-life event in Jane Austen's life, something that happened to her aunt. Would you tell me a bit about that and why you decided to include something similar in The Austen Girls? Seriously. My my train of thought here was something
1: that um, P.D. James once said about Jane Austen's novel Emma. And she said the reason she enjoyed Emma with all the Jane Austen novels is because it's essentially a detective story. And it, it is. If you if you read Emma with, with your detective fiction hat on, you see that she lets out little clues, little snatches, little glimpses of the true thing that is going on that, of course, Emma does not realise herself. But the reader, the, the really discerning reader, may get there before her, or, or certainly will do on the second reading. So... Yeah. If you think of Jane Austen as a detective story writer, which you certainly can do, the next step on from that is Jane Austen as a detective herself. Now, this is my imagination. We have no evidence that she was involved in in thief-taking or you know, the way in which Georgian society policed itself before the invention of the police. This was an age when it was the duty of every citizen to try to help solve crime. Um, it wasn't left to the professionals in a way that it would be in the 19th century. And one... Way in which crime impinged on Jane Austen's real life, as you say, is that her aunt, so this is Aunt Jane's Aunt Jane, <laughs> got caught up in an incident in a shop in Bath, actually, which involved um, the shopkeeper saying that she had shoplifted a valuable piece of lace. Now, what was really going on here? It could be that this was a scam by the shopkeeper to try to um, blackmail Jane's Aunt Jane, Aunt Jane's Aunt Jane. Uh, you know, uh, this will all go away if you just pay a large sum of money. You're known to be a wealthy woman. Mm-hmm. Or it could have been that Aunt Jane's Aunt Jane genuinely was a kleptomaniac. There is a, That is a school of thought. There is an argument you can make for that to have been the case. But it was hugely, uh, you know, traumatising for the family because uh, the laws in Georgian England were 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 different. They were based on property. So there was a case, uh, it it was the case in Georgian England that, for example, if you were hungry and you stole a string of sausages, it could be that you would be punished almost as badly as for committing a murder. So all of these crimes against property, a whole network of really ludicrous sounding punishments had grown up around them uh, to, to punish them, to try to keep, you know, to protect the interests of the property classes. So when Aunt Jane's Aunt Jane was accused of shoplifting, the stakes were really high. She she could have been, well, she, she was sent to prison to await trial. And it's possible that things like um, transportation, capital punishment would be involved. So I wanted to explore the injustices of the Georgian legal system as a bit of a as a bit of a subplot, and also to present uh, Jane Austen in a role which I I thought that she would occupy very happily, which was Mm -hmm. as a sort of um, amateur, thief-taker, or detective. Mm -hmm. And uh, she sucks her nieces into her work.
0: Yes. Well, I I love that in the book. I think it's wonderful, and it gives Fanny such a good chance at being a heroine herself, too. So I really enjoyed that. But I really did thoroughly enjoy your imagined, you know, perception of Jane Austen too. Were you nervous at bringing her to life through fiction? I mean, she's such a famously elusive person. Was, <laughs> were you nervous about trying to bring her to life in fiction? Well, one of the reasons that
1: I write my fiction for the 11 to 14 readership is that I have it in my mind, and I know I'm wrong about this, I have it in my mind that they won't judge me for, for doing, you know, crazily, ludicrously presumptuous things like this. I feel like if I was writing fiction for, for adults, I wouldn't be able to get away with it. But somehow I feel like kids are more f- forgiving, more willing to su- dis- suspend their 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 disbelief, you know, ready to come on a journey with me. And, and that's why I enjoy it. That's why I love doing it. It's 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 great and I, I one of the sad things about this particular period is that I'm not getting to go to schools and meet all all of my readers like I normally would when a mm. when a new book comes out and I I, uh, I, I just love the way they, they follow you into an imaginative world and they take the rules of the world for granted if you know mm. what I mean so that yes that's why um fiction historical fiction I hope can be you know, a means of providing a moral education. If, if they believe in your world, then they will believe the, the messages that you're trying to, trying to convey, which in my case are always about making up your own mind, being bold, not doing what's expected of you, just being a heroine.
0: Yes. Well, and I mean, I love all of the young adult novels that you've done so far. And you do always pick young girls as the heroines of your tales. Why is it especially important to you um, to write historical fiction for young adults and children that particularly focuses on women in history?
1: Oh, uh... Firstly, for my own self-indulgent pleasure. <laughs> but 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 also because I feel that... Okay, look, I, I have got in trouble for saying this before, but my books, they really are for girls. My, girl, my first reads, the readers I have in mind are girls, rather than boys. And that's not because I don't think boys shouldn't read. Of course they should read. It's just that boys have other advantages in life that girls don't have. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I... Also like doing historical stories because that is my way into my it's my personal way of having um come into the world of history myself uh, I, I'm really lucky to be a professional historian it's a really it is it, it's, it's a privileged um thing to be able to do and I got into it by reading um when I was a girl of between 11 and 14 uh, reading the novels, particularly of a, a writer called Jean Plady, who lots of oh, people, yes. lots of people are very aware, aware of as a writer for adults. But she did a whole series for for younger readers as well. They were called The Young Elizabeth, The Young Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, I, I sucked all these all these books up like like a sponge. And yes. uh, they they opened my eyes to. To history really in fact I've still got my copy of The Young Elizabeth by Jean Plady which is important to me because it's about Elizabeth I growing up at Hampton Court Palace and he's got a picture of Hampton Court Palace on the front which is actually <laughs> where my office is now I go there every day I feel like something was some there's some link between my two selves there but my my oh. copy my copy of The Young Young um let me just tell you this because I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed but also amused by it as an as an adult I've looked at my copy which was given to me by the girl who lived next door in our street. And um, I've noticed that she must have stolen it from our school library because he's still got (laughs) a library ticket in the back of it.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, I loved Jean Plady when I was young too, so I love that you've spoken about her. But also I think, you know, your books are wonderful because so often... um, I think it is the men in history that are focused on so much in school. So I love that you are really writing about some of the important female figures in history to inspire young readers as well. But I imagine with the Austen girls, you would also like to inspire the younger generation to go on and read Jane Austen's books as well and to learn more about her life and her work. Why do you think her novels are still so relevant for young women today? You touched on this a little bit already, but why do you think they really are still so relevant? And what do you think will surprise young women the most when they come to her books for the first time?
1: Well, I think they're great works of art, you know, on the level of, of Shakespeare or, you know, they're, they're endlessly plumbable for the, the artistry and the creativity. And that means that they're timeless and that every generation needs to come to them and find out what speaks to them today. Mm -hmm. And when I started uh, researching Jane Austen's life and writing about her, you know, there was a part of me that thought, okay, another famous person. Why her? Why not do somebody who we don't know the name of? Um, And I do genuinely think that there's a sense... That is okay because there's unfinished business here. One of the things that's heartbreaking about Jane Austen's real life is that she died so young um, at 41 before she got the recognition recognition that she deserved. At the time that she died, nobody knew who she was. And that's because her name wasn't on the cover of her books. They were published late. They were published anonymously, as was correct for a well-born Georgian lady. So you just feel this injustice that one of the world's greatest artists died so young and having received so little in return from the world um, for her talent. And that feels like a sort of debt that still needs to be repaid
0: and which Mm.
1: is beginning to be repaid through things like her appearing on our our coinage and whatever and uh there are you know I, I i don't think that my 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 story the austin girls particularly will lead people to jane Austen, because they will find her way they will find their way anyway because there's always going to be um a new film and the choices that women make are just so resonant, aren't they? Stories about Mm. worlds in which choices have high stakes and in which there are many restrictions to what you can and can't do. It never gets old. It never gets old, does it?
0: No, it doesn't. And I mean, yes, you're so right that her books are incredibly timeless and every woman still has so many similar questions, I think, um, and difficulties to encounter even now, but it's also very much about choosing how to live your own life and the kind of person you want to be and yes that that just that never grows old does it
1: no no totally and I think one of the reasons that they translate so well into other cultures is because every culture recognizes these issues who are you going to get to meet are you going to marry uh, what do you expect to make of your life
0: Yes, yes, exactly. But Lucy, at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests to give a cultural recommendation. So I know we're a bit limited at the moment in in terms of the (laughs) culture that we can enjoy. It really is just culture at home. But I was hoping you could maybe tell me about a book or a podcast or a TV show documentary that you've been enjoying recently. Certainly. Certainly.
1: Now, I spoke earlier about how I feel that uh, Jane Austen would be working in a Hollywood writer's room if she were alive today. So I've chosen um, the final season of the show, Homeland, which is on at, at the moment. And I uh, am uh, totally, totally in love with the show. I've watched every single episode of it. And uh, I feel that the heroine Carrie is, mm-hmm. if if you don't know, she's a CIA agent. Um, she's, she's, she's deeply, uh, flawed. She has all sorts of, um, mental health issues, but she's also brilliant. She's also the one who always saves the day and, uh, she can make herself very difficult, very unpleasant. She knows that she's cleverer than everybody else that doesn't help her case. And, um, she is in many ways a modern Emma Woodhouse. Oh. And it's also oh, no, it's, like... it's, it's also a love story between Carrie and her 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 much older wiser handler, who's Saul. He's the sort of senior CIA agent, and he's he's Mister he's Mister Knightley in this in this love story.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that comparison. I've seen some of Homeland, uh, but not this last season at all. So that's a great recommendation. Mm. Thank you, and oh, yeah. I must watch it myself. <laughs> but what's next for you? I mean, I know. That sadly, book events and things like that have been cancelled or postponed at the moment. But I was wondering if you could tell me about any upcoming projects that you're working on in all your all your various different sort of caps that you wear um, (laughs) at the moment.
1: Yes, yes. Um, My 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 main work that I do when I'm not writing is um, to work at historic royal palaces as a museum curator. And one of the things that's been sad about this season is a small sadness in the scheme of things, but I think I still am allowed to be sad about it, is the way that our exhibition didn't open this year, which was about... um, photographs by and of royal people life through a royal lens it was called we now hope to open it next year this this time next year at kensington palace but we did make a um a bbc program to tie in with it which is called uh the royal photo album and i believe that bbc4 are still going to show that in may as was planned so that'll be the next uh new project that uh, i have coming out
0: Oh, wonderful. Well, I'll look forward to that in in May then um, and hopefully to the exhibition next year. Next year,
1: next year. Yes. (laughs) One day we will meet again.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But if listeners would like to keep up with your news, Lucy, where's best for them to find you online?
1: I am in three different places. I am on Twitter, where I'm Lucy underscore Worsley. I am on Facebook, where my page is just called Lucy Worsley. And I'm on Instagram where I'm also called Lucy underscore Worsley.
0: Wonderful. Well, I'll put links to those in the show notes for this episode as well, of course, links to your uh, fantastic book. But thank you so much again for coming on Tea and Tattle. It's been such a treat chatting about Jane Austen oh. and everything with you today. It's been
1: a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Lucy for her wonderful interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 135. If you've enjoyed my chat with Lucy, then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or please consider leaving a review of Tea and Tattle on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners will love. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to tune in to Tea and Tattle again this Friday when I'm in conversation with the art critic Laura Cumming about her brilliant book on Chapel Sands which is a fascinating investigation into Laura's mother's childhood and their family history. Until next time, goodbye.